warm welcome to First Move, another busy show for you this Thursday as we follow the FTX fall from grace and survey the outlook for the crypto space with the head of the giant crypto exchange, Coinbase. Our special interview with the CEO, Brian Armstrong, coming up later on in the programme. His key message, though, do not judge the entire crypto community by the actions of one rogue player. We will discuss also this hour, regulator Hester Pierce, a commissioner at the powerful US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, on what regulators can and should learn from this and what comes next. Former FTX head Sam Bankman-Fried saying in a new interview that fresh regulation is not the answer, using language way too strong to repeat here. Just for the record, I disagree. The industry needs much more robust regulatory oversight to protect investors and consumers and restore some level of trust and level the global playing field. We will discuss. It's an important day to discuss Chris future amid reports that crypto lender BlockFee is planning a bankruptcy filing. Just to remind you, BlockFee was once the recipient of millions of dollars worth of FTX aid. The lending unit of crypto investment bank Genesis Global and crypto exchange Gemini restricting customer withdrawals too. So there's clearly turmoil in the space or ongoing turmoil. The head of Binance now proposing a crypto recovery fund to help steadying tottering firms. The crypto outlook bruised. U.S. stock investors not enthused. Take a look at that. Futures are looking softer after a Wednesday pullback driven in part by a holiday sales warning from retail giant Target and some hawkish Fed speak too. They are nowhere near done yet. In Europe, UK shares are lower after the government's austere budget statement. Spending cuts and tax hikes are on the menu and we are live in London with more on the details of that. In the meantime, it's a softer picture over in Asia too, with particular weakness among tech stocks. Tencent is slashing its exposure to meal delivery firm Meituan, and there are fears of more Tencent entrenchment ahead too. It's also set to cut its stake in online retailer JD.com. Wowzers, there is lots to get to today. But in the meantime, we do begin with the war in Ukraine. And Ukraine is likely to get access to a missile strike site in Poland. That, according to a senior Polish official, it's what President Zelensky has been calling for and also repeated in his late night address on Wednesday, saying, quote, the Ukrainian position is very transparent. We want to establish all the details, every fact. Meanwhile, dozens of new missile attacks across Ukraine took place today, mostly targeting energy infrastructure once again. Nick Robertson joins us now from Kyiv. Nick, good to have you with us. President Zelensky very clear last night, and I mentioned it there in, in his speech, but he did create a degree of confusion over that earlier missile strike this week when talking to Ukrainian journalists earlier on Wednesday. Just can you talk us through perhaps some of the confusion that was created and what we know? Yeah, early on Wednesday, or specifically late afternoon Wednesday time uh, here in Kyiv, President Zelensky, speaking to local journalists, repeated something he'd mentioned in his previous nightly address Tuesday night, saying that he didn't believe that these were Ukrainian missiles uh, that had landed and killed those two Polish farm workers. However, in his nightly address Wednesday, after speaking to the local reporters, which is the, the, the point in the day when President Zelensky kind of sums everything up for the country and gives them what's happened, what's changed, what his thinking, what his assessment of things are. He, he no longer mentioned and uh, no longer made that claim 
an apparently now we know false claim that there's no that these were not Ukrainian missiles. His own air defense people had said, look, we were trying to shoot down Russian missiles in that area. What he said was the words that you said that um, Ukraine is being transparent, um, that everyone has full access to the data that Ukraine has, and it w wants to be part of that investigation. The Polish side already said yes. They're consulting with the U.S. partners on access to that site, and, and it does appear uh, Polish officials are saying it's very likely that Ukraine will get access. I, I think perhaps what we heard from uh, President Zelensky, and it, it's impossible to read his mind, obviously, but he hadn't caught up with the facts that were being presented by his officials. Um, you know why he was busy why he didn't know that's not clear what he will be very aware of is the political manipulation around this it's already being perpetrated by russia trying to claim that this is nato and ukraine trying to escalate the war uh, framing it that way and as well there will be questions asked in the investigation was Rus russia intentionally flying cruise missiles close to the border with poland to induce these automated air defense systems which trigger off on where a missile is detected it doesn't have somebody riding a joystick it's all automatic um, to chase down that missile did Russia intentionally fire one close to the Polish border to try to engender such a scenario because Russia would see that potentially as a way to cut off uh, these much needed air defense supplies that Ukraine's getting from the rest of the world so it's a very very politically charged situation and it does seem that President Zelensky um, always aware of, uh, of, of what can happen in the political scene has now his statements seem to run concurrent with what we're hearing from his allies and partners at NATO. Very politically charged and why we need to establish firm facts. We've obviously heard from NATO, we've heard from others this week, but we need this investigation to be concluded and to be able to um, at least draw a line under it. But thank you for, for clarifying those points for, for those that might be confused. Um, there's all sorts of things on social media in particular. Um, for now, one bright spot, Nick, that the Black Sea grain deal, essential for getting grain supplies around the world, has been extended. It was due to end this week. Yeah, and a, and a sort of a brighter spot on it, if you will, although um, this is not extended indefinitely. The original deal was for 90 days and this new deal is for 120 days. So I, I think um, at the UN and the UN has been sort of central to helping get this off the ground and keeping it running. Two separate deals, one struck with Ukraine, one struck with Russia. They're not making a deal with each other on this, um, that this uh, Turkish UN effort has has actually pushed the boundaries. So this new uh, grain movement should get more uh, of that tonnage of grain uh, shipped around the world. Remembering in the summer that it was hoped that the three, that three-month period, 90 days, would get about 20 million tonnes of grain uh, and other commodities out. It didn't achieve that target, uh, just a little bit less than 11 million tonnes. So 120 days, um, opportunity to catch up and, and keep global food prices a little more stable. Yes, a rare moment of bright news and, and good news on that front. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you. Nick Robertson there. OK, let's move on to a rare and unscripted moment from Xi Jinping caught on camera. The Chinese president confronting Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau over conversations held at the G20 summit. Just watch this. Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. 
And that's not how the way the conversation was conducted. If there is sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have. We will continue to look to work constructively together, but there will be things we will disagree on, and we will have Let's create the conditions first. We'll repeat, joins us on this. Well, it's uh, it's very surprising, I think, simply because everything that we normally see from Xi Jinping feels so scripted that to see this unscripted moment is shocking, irrespective of what's taking place. But what do we know about the details? Was something leaked or was it just a, a readout that, that we do tend to see from meetings like this from, from Western leaders? Well, some might say that this is a sign that the Chinese Communist Party leadership under this new, uh, you know, even more powerful Xi Jinping with the unprecedented third term that paves the way as Chinese leader for life, making him the most powerful since Mao Zedong. uh, This might actually be the new normal that world leaders in the West uh, can engage in this sort of face to face. uh, Some might say muscular diplomacy. I mean, Xi Jinping certainly wouldn't be the first world leader to confront another uh, about, you know, leaks of a conversation and feeling that that conversation was mischaracterized, although that is a pretty strong allegation for him to make uh, against Justin Trudeau and his staff. And you you heard the prime minister of Canada, uh, you know, kind of, you know, jump right in there and defend free and open and frank conversations. Uh, you know, this is this is part of a long-standing issue that China has had with the West. You, you know, China itself incredibly buttoned up. This is not a leaky government from the chief you know, Xi Jinping perspective, uh, you just that doesn't happen in China. But yet in democracies, it's, it's quite common for, for the press to receive details of conversations that help to push along, uh, you know, coverage of issues. That's the whole point of having a transparent and kind of open uh, government, or at least as open as a democracy uh, is. Of course, some things are meant to be kept secret. In this case, there were details reported in the Canadian papers. And so Justin Trudeau, hours after that exchange, was really trying to to downplay the the severity of it uh, as awkward as it actually looked on that video. Here's what he said. Listen, I think that people know that not all the conversations are going to be easy with the other leaders, especially when it comes to issues that are sources of disagreement. This has really been a full court press by Xi Jinping after three years of self-imposed pandemic isolation. He met uh, here in Bangkok today with the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, the first uh, formal meeting uh, with the Japanese Prime Minister in three years. He met with the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Uh, He was greeted at the airport by Hong Kong's new chief executive, John Lee. That's certainly a friendly face. Uh, But at the G20 in Bali, Julia, I mean, he had meetings with a number of U.S. allies. Of course, there was that three-hour marathon on Monday with President Biden, uh, where, where Xi Jinping later, you know, pushed back at, at the narrative that it's a fight of, you know, democracy versus autocracy. He said that what he has in his country is, as he put it, Chinese-style democracy. Uh, and, and he also met, by the way, with the leaders of Australia, France, the Netherlands, South Korea, uh, South Africa, Senegal. I mean, the list goes on uh, in terms of the meetings that he had. And what's also really interesting to me, Julia, is that he's now here in Bangkok and he was in Indonesia uh, mingling with people without a mask, shaking hands, uh, you know, walking through streets that are bustling and essentially back to almost pre-pandemic levels in terms of tourism and in terms of businesses being open, life feeling normal. And yet the China that he rules 
with 1.4 billion people, they're still living in this, you know, Orwellian, you know, pandemic time warp with rolling lockdowns and mandatory COVID testing and a police state of heavy surveillance where movements are restricted. So even though he's trying to, uh, you know, portray himself much like a Western leader, including with this sort of face-to-face diplomacy, the reality is the country that he controls, which is very much under his control with very few people to check his power, life there very, very different from what most people around the world would consider a good life, Julia. Yes, the extremes in the differences in in culture and approach here on various different levels, um, well underscored. Will Ripley, thank you so much for that. Okay, it's the $64 billion question. Actually, it's closer to $65 billion, we believe, but that's the price the British government has put on restoring its economic credibility and the economy. Let's be clear, Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt announced higher taxes and lower spending in his autumn fiscal plan and warned of difficult decisions to come. High inflation is the enemy of stability. It means higher mortgage rates, more expensive food and fuel bills, businesses failing and unemployment rising. It erodes savings, causes industrial unrest and cuts funding for public services. It hurts the poorest the most and eats away at the trust upon which a strong society is built. Anita Dos Santos joins us now from London. I was just doing the quick calculations on that. I believe we've gone from a £45 billion, because we're in pounds here, not dollars, pounds of unfunded tax cuts under Liz Trust to £55 billion worth of spending cuts and tax rises under Rishi Sunak. And I think that underscores the, the point about austerity in the country, even as the economy struggles. Yeah, that's right. Complete reversal of his predecessor's uh, budget, Jeremy Hunt unveiled. However, I should say, without apologising for the fact that it was still essentially the same party, albeit with a different government, Conservative-led government, uh, that is in charge, that has put this on the table here. So you can forgive perhaps the electorate here in Great Britain for being a bit confused, saying, well, how come a couple of months ago it was okay for... uh, leader of the Conservative Party in the guise of Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng to put something on the table that appeared to be so expansionary only for the country now to have been plunged into a situation where it has to fill a fiscal black hole that is, as you said, of the tens of billions of pounds or dollars. And that is the exercise that Jeremy Hunt has tried painfully to try and explain to the House of Commons earlier today. Um, It's backed up by figures that originally, you'll remember a month or two ago, uh, the previous government of Liz Truss tried to not consult the Office for Budget Responsibility that actually fact-checked whether or not these budgets are actually going to have the desired effect and whether or not they're properly balanced. We're currently seeing the Office of Budget Responsibility deliver their verdict on this budget as we speak in their own press conference. Now let's go into the details here. As you pointed out, there are about 50-odd billion pounds, $65 billion worth of tax cuts. But I do want to caveat that a lot of these are actually going to be tax freezes that will then kick into effect after 2025. That date is crucial. It's because an election is going to happen in two years from now. So some people have been questioning the logic here that Jeremy Hunt has put on the table. Why announce tax cuts that your government may not actually see through? Because if the polls uh, are anything to go by, it's certainly looking as though the Conservatives, if they're an election to be held today, would actually lose that. What he's doing is freezing things like um, spending on cultural activities, uh, freezing certain budgets of certain government departments, putting a bit more money on the table for the National Health Service, 
to acknowledge the fact that there's a huge pandemic backlog that needs to be addressed, a little bit more money on the table for education, which he says will hopefully try and raise the level of educational attainment and therefore productivity, perhaps boosting the tax take in a few years' time. Uh, they're also going to be acknowledging that there'll be some uh, help needed for the lowest earners in the country. But overall, millions more people will end up getting dragged into paying more tax as a result of this budget. Also, companies that operate in the energy sector will have to pay a higher rate of energy windfall taxes as well, according to the latest statement. Julia? Yes, a challenge for many countries at this moment, too, not just the United Kingdom, but painful nonetheless. Nina Dos Santos, thank you so much for that. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. In the last few hours, John Ray, the lawyer who managed the Enron bankruptcy, said he's never seen such a, quote, complete failure of corporate controls as FTX. Ray took over as CEO of FTX after founder Sam Bankman-Fried stepped down. Big questions are now once again being asked about the future of crypto regulation and the need for guardrails and greater consumer protection. The turmoil also providing plenty of ammunition for those who've remained skeptical about crypto, blockchain and all forms of the underlying technology. Just listen to this. I think a lot of a lot more regulation is coming now. Whether you know, if if the whole enterprise makes no sense, it may not end up being highly regulated. It may end up just disappearing. But at least for the time being, yeah. I mean, uh, there should have been a lot more safeguards against what appears to be going on. Well, this is going to drive the, the crypto community wild. Paul, probability that it all goes to zero, that it all disappears. You raised it there. I mean, where is it? Yeah. I mean, what what's it? The question has always been, what problem does crypto solve? And we still haven't gotten an answer to that. And uh, we've discovered a lot of problems it creates, but none that it solves. My face there, I think, said it all. But there were two questions, two important questions raised there. One, whether there's value in what is a very diverse sector and that often gets all lumped together just like that. And two, whether this accelerates the right kind of regulation. Something our next guest has long called for. Joining us now is Hester Pierce, one of the five commissioners at the US Securities and Exchange Commission. Commissioner Pierce, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Um, can we start there? Because this is something that you fought for. Do you think that, that recent events, and I know you can't be specific about individual cases, accelerate regulation? And I know it's not a simple question, nor is it an easy solution. But do you think it does accelerate? Yeah, Julia, thank you for having me. And I, I do think that an event like this can be a catalyst for really focusing minds on regulation. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, these are these are rules that we should have been writing years ago. And so if we can turn our attention to doing that now, that's a good thing. I There are a couple things, though, to worry about. And one is that in, in the wake of something bad happening, it's often very tempting to craft regulations just based on what you just saw. And, and second, you know, rushing to regulation can mean that you don't get the public input that you need to, to develop good regulation. So I think we need to turn our attention to it, work on it, get the broad public input that we need, um, and that will, will be a good thing. Yeah, I think your emphasis on, again, is about quality and the right regulation rather than um, knee-jerk 
I know you've been a, a, a almost a broken record, and I say that smiling for, for better quality regulation, but it in part does come down to Congress too. And I, I just wanted to show our viewers a tweet from Senator Pat Toomey from back in November, and I think this is very important, and I'll read it too as we show it. Congress's failure to pass legislation creating regulatory guardrails for crypto trading combined with the complete hostility and lack of transparency by the SEC governor has generated a debilitating amount of legal uncertainty. Um, can I ask for your response to that? Because I know you've long said, and you've been open with, with your boss, uh, Gary Gensler, the SEC chair, that the enforcement approach isn't enough. It's not optimal for what we're seeing. Do you think he's hostile to the sector in general? And is that creating a gap where consumers are at greater risk than they should be? Because that's the key. Well, actually, Senator Toomey is, is my boss uh, more than uh, <laughs> Sheriff Gensler is my boss. Uh, so, so I do think that what he says um, is, is important. And it, I, I do have the same concern that the lack of regulatory clarity in the United States has led to undue emphasis on um, trading it and, and not on building things. And so I think if we had if we had better rules in the United States, if we were clear about when something is covered by the securities laws, and then we went and we developed the securities laws in the way that we're, that Congress authorized us to do, to allow necessary accommodations, to let the experimentation happen, to let the technology grow, um, then the, the development in this space would have been healthier and, and there would have been greater protection um, for, for people buying tokens, there would have been better information. I, I put out several years ago now a, a call to have a, a safe harbor in which there'd be disclosure given when tokens were being sold. Um, so these are these are basic things that would have put us in a, in a better place. I'm not going to speak to um, what my fellow commissioners uh, feel about crypto. I think that's up to them to say. But, you know, as regulators in this space, we could have done more. I, I think it's a case of um, certainly what I hear from the sector itself is, you know, don't tell people off when they're naughty. Tell them what's naughty first and then they can avoid it. And there's sort of a lack of clarity from all sides, whether that's the SEC, whether it's the CFTC, whether it's even basic banking regulations at times, too. Um, there is something specific, though, that I want to touch on here. And again, I know you can't talk about specific issues, but um, in, in the case of FTX, there were strong ties to regulators. And, and I'd had that conversation with Sam himself about regular visits to, to D.C. And again, I think the perception in the industry that there was sort of a cozy relationship and that there simply isn't a level playing field and that some sectors or businesses within this space are favoured versus others. It's surely about creating a level playing field, too, which we, we, you could argue we don't have today. Well, I mean, I think this highlights one of the one of the reasons I've been calling for an open regulatory process. We need to have we need to have conversations with people in the industry. We need to have conversations with people who are interested in using the technology. Um, but we need to do that in a way that allows people to to see what those conversations are, to respond to one another, and and that is an important part of how rules get made. I think one of the one of the things that crypto is trying to push back against is a financial system that's that's dependent on who you are and who you know. And so, you know, let's let's try to 
embody that spirit and have a regulatory uh, discussion that involves everyone. Do, do you agree that that's what it's like now? It's a, it's a case of who you know and what context you have and what relationships you have, which can happen with nascent well, technology. I mean, over time, yeah, you know, this is one of my, my broader concerns about the, the financial mm -hmm. industry in general, which is that because we're a very highly regulated industry, because the, the industry, uh, you know, we're, we, the SEC and the banking regulators, there are a lot of regulations on the books, which means that knowing your way around the regulatory system becomes a very essential part of doing business. And so I'm always looking for ways that we can lower barriers to entry. That doesn't mean eliminating regulations. It just means thinking about which regulations are necessary and then following the due process requirements that that Congress has placed on us, which is to do as much as as much of our work as we can in the open. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and, and I'm going to play for my viewers a conversation that I had with the CEO of Coinbase, who's one of the other big exchanges. And um, someone in the industry said to me, you know, for, for, for someone that wants to invest in this kind of thing at the moment, it's like almost putting money with a bank. Clearly, a crypto exchange is not a bank, but you, you put your money there, you can transfer it to some form of digital asset to crypto. Um, but the big difference is, is that when you put your money in a bank, there's insurance if, if things go wrong. Um, you'd almost be better off today rather than giving your money to a crypto exchange, actually just putting the money on a Starbucks card because at least there's guaranteed utility value and that, that you get lots of coffee. Um, and their point was about, one, the, the lack of clarity, the lack of protections, but also that what's going on right now doesn't allow the good to flourish. It means that everybody's tarred with the same brush and actually it takes down the good with the bad. Would you agree with that? Because it sort of goes back to the point that, that Paul Krugman was making, that everything's lumped together and what could be good is being hit and hurt too. No, I think that's certainly true. When, when something bad happens, people start to, to assume that everything is bad. Now, you know, the, the ethos of crypto is certainly not large centralized entities. So I don't know how much you can take from events that happen involving large centralized entities, but sure, the the whole the whole space gets tarred with um, with any event like this, and I, it, it is a moment for introspection too. I mean, the industry doesn't need to wait for the government to try to fix everything. There there are many things that that the industry could have and should have been doing on its own. Proof of reserves is one basic thing. Um, there, the whole point of decentralized technology is transparency so that you can see what's happening. And indeed, that did help some people see what was happening um, in, in certain situations. There have been instances where, where bad things have happened and people have been able to see that on chain, right? And so I think that is an area too where people can spend their time um, doing things on their own without the regulator coming in, thinking about counterparty risk, thinking about the risks that come from leverage, um, the risks when you leave your money or your assets in a particular place, you should have an understanding of what the risk of, of that place is. And, and if something goes wrong, what will happen to your assets? So is, these are all things that the industry can do. This is such a great point. So can I just confirm that what you're saying is for every player in this space that's taking customer money, they should be 
transparent at this moment and say, these are our reserves, this is our position, customer funds are protected. This is, we're going to be as transparent as we can. Again, that creates some kind of basis for, for consumers to be able to judge, even without regulation. We should all be calling for that. Yeah, and players in this space should provide absolutely. it. Hmm. I, absolutely. I and, and I always find it funny when people um, in industries, particularly industries that have said, we think we can, we can do a lot without regulation when they don't actually take those steps to do those basic things. And so, yes, we as regulators have a responsibility to, to move forward and do something but people who believe in this technology also have a responsibility. I have about 30 seconds. I know, again, you can't talk about specific cases, but would that potentially prevent the fraud, the risk of fraud that we've seen in the past with all companies, just greater transparency at a very basic level? Because regulation can't always protect against those things, surely. Exactly. No, and market participants are really are really uh, key in identifying bad activity and having things happen on chain in a way that everyone can see and lots of people can be checking. That is a way to uh, to combat fraud, and and I'm hoping that we'll see more emphasis on that. Yeah, it doesn't excuse or exclude regulators, but there's more we can do, and we all take responsibility for that. Hester, Commissioner Pierce, That's great to point. have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Welcome back. And just in to CNN, three men have been convicted in a court in the Netherlands of downing a Malaysia Airlines passenger plane back in 2017. Flight MH17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine, killing all 298 passengers and crew on board. At that time, the area was the scene of fighting between pro-Russian separatists and Ukrainian forces. Of the four men accused of downing the airliner, three are Russian and one is Ukrainian. One Russian was acquitted. All four men remain fugitives and are believed to be in Russia. We're still waiting to learn their sentences. And any further details, we will bring them to you. Now, earlier we heard how the Securities Exchange Commission emphasizes the importance of crypto regulation. That sentiment is echoed by Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, who, like all of us, has been reflecting on the fall of FTX. Now, established back in 2012, Coinbase is the largest U.S.-based cryptocurrency exchange. It has over 100 million verified users, over $100 billion in assets on the platform, and employs close to 5,000 people. Coinbase was also an investor in FDX, along with other big names such as BlackRock and Sequoia Capital. So I began by asking Brian Armstrong to reflect on what happened about new concerns over potential criminal behavior and the long crypto winter that could lie ahead. I began by asking, how do we avert another FTX? The most important lesson is that major financial hubs around the world, you know, the US, the UK, Singapore, Hong Kong, etc., all of these regions have started to say, we want this industry to be regulated. We believe there's a lot of innovation potential. And in many of these markets, we've started to see regulatory clarity emerge, um, not just you know, for the traditional financial services piece, which many of the centralized pieces in crypto are regulated that way. That's how we're regulated today, but also providing clarity about the crypto specific regulation. And unfortunately, due to the lack of the clarity about that crypto specific legislation, in particular in the US around what is a commodity, what is a security, what are other types of crypto like stablecoins, it's driven a lot of the activity to these offshore players. And that has turned out to actually harm investors that you know were drawn to these overseas companies. 
It's harmed American businesses. And so I think there's a real impetus. This, this is a moment for the U.S. and every major market around the world to say, let's go create that regulatory clarity for the crypto space so we can grow this industry in a trusted and reliable way. And we stop having investors be harmed by these offshore actors. I think the other thing that comes down to um, an individual here, and you talked about the cozy relationship with with regulators. I mean, these are big investors in FTX that were, were also duped. I mean, uh, Sequoia Capital, BlackRock, for example, there were a lot of people that you would expect to be able to at least do some due diligence that the ordinary people can't. Is there something about Sam Bankman-Fried that, that people missed that was sort of hiding in plain sight? Because he was an unusual character in many respects. Right. I mean, I have to say, you know, I, I feel duped as well. I mean, he was incredibly um, compelling and, and competent, clearly an intelligent indiv individual. You know, I, I viewed him as somebody who was perhaps a bit young and maybe even reckless at times, but certainly not fraudulent. Um, I, I didn't see that coming. And so, you know, a lot of venture firms, I think, are going back and looking at what diligence they did as well. And what were the signs? What could they have seen? I know for myself, um, just seeing over the last year, I, I knew how much revenue we had done as a public company, um, you know, last year we did seven, seven billion revenue and, and I knew what our budgets were to kind of go do venture investments and these kinds of things. And FTX, which was a relatively small competitor um, at that time, you know, they'd done about one seventh our revenue. They seemed to have unlimited funds to go invest in things. And I, I certainly was scratching my head a few times to think like, where, where are they getting the liquidity from this? You know, they had this other um, entity called Alameda, which was their market maker slash hedge fund. And people kept telling me, well, that thing is just printing so much money. That's how it's explained. But, you know, we always we never wanted to have a market maker. We felt it was a conflict of interest uh, since we're operating an exchange. And, you know, it, it just seemed too good to be true. And so now when I look back, I kind of I, I wonder if I should have noticed something sooner. Yeah, I think the um, the reflection on this is vitally important for many reasons, because it's just provided further fuel to all the skeptics, further technology, for the industry. Um, which is a, an added complication. And I guess it's a complication for your business too, as we've discussed. And I, I want to talk about that more. Um, firstly, there are likely, would you agree, that, that other people struggle as a result of, of the complication that this has added and, and the pressure that this has added to the sector. I think the latest um, is Genesis, um, sort of the lending arm of the crypto brokerage now, Genesis, saying it's suspending withdrawals. Binance, which is another... Uh, crypto exchange, a giant one out there is talking about a recovery fund to try and support those that good companies that are now under severe pressure as a result of this. Can I ask if you intend to join that recovery fund or, or set up your own? Is there sort of opportunity here in in what appears to be chaos? Yeah, so you're correct that there there is certainly contagion happening in the industry right now as everybody is sort of looking at various private companies and saying, hey, what else might we not know? Right. And I think there's also increased scrutiny on these offshore uh, exchanges that may, you know, may or not be following the rules in different jurisdictions. And so it's appropriately so it's raising a lot of questions about these companies. Now, I think while this is net bad for the industry for the moment, it's um, it's net positive for Coinbase in the sense that we've been following this trusted and regulated approach for the last 10 years. And it's kind of va a validation of our strategy. And I just want to say, you know, crypto is not going anywhere, by the way. This is um, mm. it's we're going to continue to build in this industry. And one bad player does not um, undermine the entire thing. It's similarly to how, you know, Bernie Madoff doesn't you know, call us, cause us to question the entire financial system, uh, the traditional financial system. So there's various actors out there now kind of creating different ways to, to establish trust. 
you know, Coinbase is going to do that uh, as a public company. We're unique in that regard. We're the only publicly listed company out there. And so audited financial statements are a really good first step. But I think we can go even beyond that and use the power of crypto to sort of say, okay, well, what cryptographic proofs can we provide? And and eventually this industry should move to, um, you know, using self-custodial wallets and something called DeFi, decentralized finance, which is totally done in, in transparent um, in on the blockchain where anybody can go audit the exact code that's being run. They can store crypto funds themselves. That's kind of the future promise of crypto and where things are going to create a more uh, trusted and fair and free financial system where you don't need to trust intermediaries. You can trust yourself and the laws of math. And I don't see a lot of that, actually, a, a separation of what we call DeFi and CeFi, the decentralized finance versus the centralized finance, which is the umbrella, of course, that FTX falls under with someone in charge here. Um, do you think crypto has been resilient, actually, in the face of this, relatively? Or it's just so beaten up there's, in your mind, perhaps not that much further it can go? Because that is important for your business as well. You've already said that the crypto winter now will extend to, to the back end of 2023. I mean, that has a material impact. On, on your flows, on your volumes? Right. Well, you have to remember, of course, you know, while crypto is in a down period, so is the broader macro environment. So right. that's due to all kinds of things and, you know, pandemic and global tensions around war. So it's not just a crypto problem. I think every company right now is looking at how to make sure that they they survive and not only just survive, but thrive through this down period. And so Coinbase, you know, we're very comfortable in these environments. Believe it or not, over the last 10 years, we've been through about four of these cycles in crypto. This one just happens to be coordinated with a broader uh, macro downturn. And so I think we're actually going to emerge much stronger from this period. We're incredibly well capitalized. We have over five billion dollars. You know, we hold our, our, our balance sheet largely in, in U.S. dollars cash, by the way. So we're not seeing that exposure on our balance sheet to crypto. And we can you know, there's opportunities in every down market as well. And so I'm actually optimistic long term um, how this is going to play out for us as a company and the sector. It's an opportunity to kind of clean out bad actors and take a different approach that is more regulated and, uh, and, and preserves the innovation potential. So in your mind, trust isn't completely broken and it can be regained where it is. Right. It's certainly broken for FTX. And I think it's causing other people to, to have more scrutiny. Um, but it's certainly not broken for us and for the broader industry. Okay, meanwhile, Sam Bankman-Fried is reportedly one of the biggest individual political donors in the United States among Democrats and Republicans. His contributions ranked sixth in a list compiled by Open Secrets, which is a nonpartisan independent nonprofit. And among Democratic donors specifically, he was the second largest in the latest electoral cycle. Although I should point out, he also donated over $200,000 to the Republicans. Brian Armstrong expressed concerns about what Bankman-Fried gained from, quote, the corridors of power and what happens now to that money. There's a big question now, I think, about whether that money should be given back. Now, you know, again, I think it's worth mentioning here that um, for a company like Coinbase, it just couldn't be more different. I mean, we're we're a publicly traded company. We're registered right here in the United States, uh, not in an offshore jurisdiction that's trying to skirt the rules. And, you know, that, that kind of an issue can't happen at Coinbase because we have publicly audited financial statements, as a, again, as a listed company. And you don't have to take our word for it. You know, you can kind of go uh, review the audits and the opinions of others and see that customer funds are clearly segregated. And we're not going to, uh, they're backed one to one, and we're not going to invest them on anybody, any customer's behalf without their explicit direction. 
Okay, coming up, autumn angst across the world of tech. Amazon, the latest major firm to announce sweeping layoffs and what it all means for the jobs market and the economy next. Welcome back. It's truly the autumn of tech discontent. Major firms cutting tens of thousands of jobs in recent weeks amid persistent recession fears. A stark contrast to the tight jobs market we're seeing elsewhere in the United States. Vanessa Yakevich has all the details. In three weeks, the tech industry lost tens of thousands of jobs. Historic layoffs at Twitter, Meta, Lyft and Amazon. Layoffs.fyi, a crowdsourced layoff tracking site, puts it at more than 35,000 layoffs so far this month. That's the highest month um, since the pandemic. Uh, So that beats April 2020 which uh, was 17,000 employees laid off. Meta cut its workforce by 13 percent. CEO Mark Zuckerberg saying he's taking accountability and apologizing to those impacted. New owner Elon Musk slashed half of Twitter's staff, with founder Jack Dorsey tweeting, the company grew too quickly, I apologize for that. And Amazon is laying off 10,000 workers this week, citing an unusual and uncertain macroeconomic environment. There were big investments made during the pandemic time. While the rest of the economy, for example, was plummeting by 3.4 percent, tech grew by 4 percent. But in a post-pandemic high inflation world, consumer behaviors and spending habits are changing with the threat of a recession on the horizon. I take this as a sign that maybe uh, companies got over their skis at some point, right? And they're trying to kind of sit upright again. Roger Lee founded Layoffs.FYI as the pandemic unfolded. Recently, he's been digging deeper into the numbers. There have been many companies who have been letting go half or more of their recruiting HR teams just because they're not hiring as many people anymore. Aaron Backman, a recruiter at a tech company, was one of those layoffs. What did that feel like for you? It was a really awful feeling. We were told really early in the morning, an email saying layoffs are coming today, and if you get a call, it's going to be you. And I sat there for six hours on Slack and watched my colleagues get laid off one by one. Then... He got the call. Depressing. As American workers watch tech giants shed jobs at a rapid clip, many in other industries are asking, am I next? Should they be nervous? First of all, the tech economy are just 2% of the labor market. Tech is an important part of the economy, but it is not the whole of the economy. The rest of the labor market is looking pretty good. The economy is adding jobs at a pretty healthy clip. Vanessa Yurkevich, CNN, New York. And the tech sector hired so many, of course, over the last two years as well. Okay, after the break, Qatar apologizing after heavy-handed security trying to pull the plug on the live broadcast, though, as you can see, the Danish crew were having none of it. All the details, next. Organizers for the World Cup in Qatar apologizing for an incident involving a Danish TV crew. A Danish reporter shared this footage saying it shows a confrontation between his crew and security staff in Doha. The reporter says they interrupted his live broadcast and threatened to break his camera. 
World Cup organisers later issued a statement saying, upon inspection of the crew's valid tournament accreditation and filming permit, an apology was made to the broadcaster by on-site security before the crew resumed their activity. It is, of course, not the only controversy Qatar is facing, as Issa Suarez reports. The winner to organise the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. The sport world was stunned when FIFA awarded the World Cup to Qatar. Controversy took centre stage and football risked becoming a sideshow. Why was Qatar, a tiny desert state with no football pedigree, chosen to host FIFA's showpiece event? Even the disgraced former chief of football's governing body has since described the decision as a mistake. I was right at a certain time to say it is, we should not go there. That move 12 years ago provoked unprecedented anger, accusations of corruption and sports washing. Qatari officials strongly denied the allegation that bribery was involved in their bid. Before a ball is kicked at this year's tournament, attention has focused on Qatar's human rights record. Its stance on same-sex relationship and most damaging to its reputation, the treatment of overseas workers drafted in to build essential infrastructure. Amnesty International claims authorities failed to properly investigate the deaths of thousands of migrant workers despite evidence linking premature deaths with unsafe working conditions in the searing heat. Qatari officials say they investigate all reports of abuse and exploitation and are committed to holding unscrupulous employers to account. How important is it to keep traditions like this? Ambassadors like David Beckham have been criticised for accepting roles said to be worth millions of dollars. If you end your relationship with Qatar, I'll donate this 10 grand of my own money. Comedian Joe Lycett called out the former England captain, saying his status as a gay icon was under threat. Homosexual acts are illegal in Qatar, considered immoral under Islamic law. Punishments include prison sentences and even death. Organisers told CNN Qatar is a tolerant and welcoming country and claim no one will be discriminated against. Nonetheless, calls to boycott the tournament have gathered momentum. When the final whistle goes at Qatar 2022, the legacy will be judged not only over 28 days of football, but in the years that lie ahead. Isa Suarez, CNN. And finally, nothing to say here, but oh baby, this little Dominican Republic resident made history as the world's eight billionth resident. That's according to the United Nations. It says this week's milestone is a celebration of human longevity thanks to improvements in public health and medicine. Cute. I wonder who counted. And congrats to the family. That's it for the show. Connect the world is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.